Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in First uh, Kings chapter 1 this evening. And uh, we'll notice this throughout the uh, book of Kings, but the, the story of a throne can be quite a tricky one. Um, that uh, even uh, it doesn't take long to be able to be a, a history... Uh, to read through history and see this is the fact. You read through the Bible, you see this is true as well. Even in our time in First and Second Samuel, we saw this, that it's never that smooth transition that uh, you might uh, first think. But there's something, maybe it's a part of the blood that still runs through uh, me, but uh, there's something fascinating about British royalty uh, that's quite fascinating to me. And even uh, in today's world there's tv shows like the crown which looks at uh, elizabeth or victoria uh movies like the king's speech but uh but the throne is meant to be seen as some form of stable asset to a kingdom the the person sitting on the throne might not be stable it uh, might change come and go uh, in America, the, the office of president uh, should be seen as something that is stable, although the person might come and go, but there should be stability through that. One of the uh, interesting uh, aspects of uh, you know, British royalty is uh, the life and story of uh, King Henry. Uh, he had six wives. Uh, he married the first wife, and uh, they had Mary. Uh, but then he wanted to look for a son, so he ended up marrying uh, his second wife. Uh, but he divorced his first wife, and the Pope said that he would not allow that uh, to be the case. So King Henry uh, decided that, well, maybe it's just best if he just uh, creates his own church. If uh, he can then be the, the, the head of the Church of England instead of the Pope, then he could uh, make up his own rules. And he ends up having six wives. And if you ever want to be able to remember uh, what happened to these wives, uh, it's quite a simple thing. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. So he had six wives. And uh, of these six wives, uh, three children actually survived. And there's actually a known one acknowledged uh, other survivor, uh, other child of his, Henry Fitzroy, but that's the only acknowledged, and many people actually assume that he has probably more children than this, but he had three children uh, from these six wives, uh, Edward uh, the sixth, uh, Mary the first, and then Elizabeth the first, and then uh, Henry Fitzroy is that uh, fourth one that uh, is openly acknowledged to someone that was not his wife. But here you have now this dilemma and the question comes up uh, in the line of kings, um, you know, uh, what happens? Edward uh, was a young uh, king, and he was quite sickly. He, uh, he was quite sick all of his life. Uh, he came to the throne after Henry did, and uh, he, he died shortly after becoming king. He did not last very long. And then uh, Mary comes to the throne. And Mary is known as uh, Bloody Mary. She's a devout Catholic. Uh, Henry has created a Protestant church, the Church of England. Uh, And then uh, Mary comes to the throne, and she then changes back, tries to revert to Catholicism, murdering all the uh, Protestants. 
Mary then uh, gets taken to the tower. Uh, Elizabeth then comes to the throne. Now, throughout all of these times, all of these wives, these three children, and none of these children had children. So Mary had a false pregnancy at one point. Uh, Elizabeth reigned a very long time, uh, but she never married and never had any children. But there was always this question then, what's going to happen next? Who is going to be the next in line? There was all this pressure put on Elizabeth to marry and then to have children. But if she was to name who would then be next in line, then she would be a threat that they would then come and kill her so that then they would be able to sit on the throne. So there was all this this battle going on. Often uh, people might name a regent uh, for something if they fell sick, uh, someone who would then take over, uh, or a woman. Uh, This happened quite a few times, is that a woman would name a regent if they got sick and were about to give birth. Child uh, Death during childbirth was quite a um, common thing, occurrence back then. Um, this happened uh, to the person that before Queen Victoria came on the throne, Charlotte. Now, just as much as there was this uncertain time in this, we also in the USA have times of what is uncertain about tomorrow. That's famous stories we looked at when we started to look at uh, uh, Absalom with Aaron Burr. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's vice president. But in all of this dilemma, we see this now presented in the book of Kings. As we begin the whole new book, what is going to happen to the throne? What is going to, who is going to sit on the throne after David? Just as lo- there was this large amount of suspense that happened throughout all of David's life, that we saw that David was anointed king in chapter 16, and for the rest of 1 Samuel... He doesn't ascend to the throne. It it seems like Saul is winning, that he might never be king. Now, we know who the next king is from 1 Samuel chapter 16. We know Samuel is a good, godly man. Uh, We know that he is right. But then what happens? Ishbosheth comes to the throne, Saul's son. And he reigns for about seven years. Although we know David is the next to be king, it's not that smooth transition that happens. David is king there in Hebron. And then what happened in, during David's reign? Well, it seemed like there was periods of peace, but Absalom now had his, this might not have been a large amount of time. But uh, here Absalom was king in Jerusalem. And we often think, as we think back on these times, we think, of course, it's just Saul and then David. But that's not the case. You know, Saul, David, Solomon. There's all these times in the middle. You have Saul, you have Ishbosheth, you have David, you have Solomon, and then in the middle you have uh, Adonijah. But even in these examples before, as I said before with King Henry, there was another lady, uh, uh, the Queen uh, Grey, Lady Grey. She was put on the throne. She was she's known as the Nine Day Queen. She was a young girl and really used by a pawn in her family to try and uh, find a way to be able to ascend to the throne. Uh, she's known as the th- Nine Day ki- Queen because what happened is she is, uh, was forced on throne by her family, and then she was executed. Um, Many people that were trying to move the parts really did not care who sat on the throne. As long as their family name would keep remaining on the throne, they didn't really mind. 
of all the privileges that you've had. Now, if you've ever watched any TV show, read books, uh, there's a TV show uh, called The Game of Thrones. Now, I do not recommend watching this TV show. It's quite a behorred, graphic, um, sexually content-driven show. But, But what I bring out is the title of this, that it's a Game of Thrones. There's often this to and fro of who is going to be able to sit on the throne, like this large game of check, but there's no checkmate at the end. The game ends, but then you ascend to the throne, and then someone else wants that position back. Many times in history, people have tried with these moving parts. They might not be able to sit on the throne, but maybe someone in their family can. Change the line in history. Now, this is a long introduction, but this all weighs up the question, what is going to happen to David's kingdom? What is going to happen to the nation of Israel underneath these new kings? Now, again, if we point, uh, we know at this point of reading, one thing to be true. In 1 Samuel, we got a a bit of a a head start because in chapter 16, we know who the next, next king is going to be. The author spends a lot of time telling us about how David was selected, David was anointed, and also we follow David's story. So we assume that David is going to be king. But up to this point, we do not know who is going to be king. All that we know is once David dies, one of David's offspring will come after him, and he will be, and the Lord will establish his kingdom. Now this is where it's helpful when we come to our text not to... Uh, we don't come merely out of the blue. We don't really, uh, but we know that there's a story beforehand, First and Second Samuel. Now we find out in First Kings what this uh, thing happens. So, uh, verses five and six. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, "I will be king." And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never done, had never at this time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So we, after all of this, David is old. We find out that he's in the, the beginning, that he's unable even to warm himself. He needs help. So he's, he's coming to the end or latter parts of his life. And now we're introduced to Adonijah. Now, in these two verses, the author, Nathan, I think at this point, informs us very important things that if we've been reading 1 and 2 Samuel, we understand a lot of what the author is trying to explain. Now, even if we don't have any more up to this point, we can see the direction of what is happening and the way the author describes this. We're able to be able to make a judgment. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Specifically, is Adonijah going to be a good king or a bad king? And the first thing that we're told in these two verses is Adonijah exalted himself. And that's exactly opposite of what his name means. Adonijah actually means Yahweh is my master or my Lord is Yahweh. But here, he is the one exalted himself. Now think back to that famous verse in uh, chapter 2, in in 2 Samuel chapter 5, when David had ascended to the throne after all this period of time, and this peace comes upon 
this, the nation of Israel. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So here, David ascends to the throne after this long period of time. God exalts David and his kingdom. But here in 1 Kings, it's not God exalting Adonijah. It's Adonijah exalted himself. Is one reason why we have nominations and a process of trying to see the external call. It's not someone merely just says, I want to be a pastor, and we say, sure, you can be a pastor. It takes more. The session needs to be able to say, this young man here shows the gifts and and abilities to be able to be called to ministry. And even in this statement that Adonijah makes, that I will be king. But what's inferred here is that Adonijah is not just merely saying, I will be king. I will do whatever it takes to be king. The second thing that the author hints at that we understand if this is a good thing or a bad thing is that he prepares chariots, horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. Now our minds should be immediately thinking about the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is exactly what Absalom did. After uh, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. The author is not only just saying Adonijah is not like David, and he's exalted himself. Adonijah is like Absalom. And this is an important refrain that that flows throughout 1 and 2 Kings. David then becomes the benchmark to be like, is the king a good king or a bad king? Did they follow in David's footsteps, or did they follow in someone else's footsteps who was evil? But here the author is pointing out that Adonijah is more like Absalom than he is like David. The third thing that the author hints at that tells us whether Adonijah is a good, going to be a good king or a bad king is that he was also a handsome man. Now, again, we should be thinking of 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now in all of Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For the sole of his foot and the crown of his head there was not a blemish on him. But not just Absalom also, we see a comparison. This is taking us all the way back to chapter 9 in 1 Samuel. There was a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man of the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now the same is said of David in chapter 16. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. But you notice the emphasis is different under David. With David, the focus is not his looks and his looks alone. Even in chapter 16, later is that, that young man in the court who is telling Saul about who um, this man that he knows of that might be able to help him with this spirit, this evil spirit that, uh, is struck, that strikes Saul. You see that David, the long list of things that this young man says, appearance isn't the center thing. 
But also the last thing that the author wants to, to be able to hint at and understand in this, these two verses is that he was born next after Absalom. Now here again we see this subtle point. Mainly he is the eldest and this would be the one who would receive the blessing. However, that's not necessarily the pattern that we see throughout the Bible. Now, it's not an exclusive principle, but it's a pretty clear pattern that we see, generally speaking. Cain is older than Abel, but it is Seth who gets the blessing. Ishmael and Isaac, Esau, Jacob, Reuben and Judah. Now, again, that's not a clear principle, but you might say it's God's choice. It's not based on age or birth order. It's based on God, the potter choosing which clay for a, ve- of, for a vessel of honor and for a vessel of dishonor. Now in all of these two verses, we find out about Adonijah, but we also find about, out about what David is doing this time. The author tells us in verse 6 that his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Now this word is used in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 2, right after Absalom dies and they win the battle. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. That same word grieving is the same word there, displeased. David here is again somewhat of a weakness that comes up that he does not even ask questions of what Adonijah is doing. Now, we're not told specifically why. We're told what happens, but we're not told why. Speculation is, because of David's sin with Bathsheba, he feels like he is unable to be able to uh, discipline his children well. But he is clearly still mentally there during this whole process. David is not absent-minded in this whole process. We'll see this clearly in the rest of the chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 2. So up to this point, the author has made some very clear things that we see. That Adonijah wants to be king. And, and the author is, is teaching us about if this is going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Now before we move on, we need to notice that as we study the Bible... And as we read more stories, we're able to connect more of these dots merely just in these two verses. Now, it does not come out and say, Adonijah was not a good man or he would not be a good king. It doesn't say that, but there's hints in here that the author has left us that point us back to what happened with Absalom, what happened with Saul. And that helps us form conclusions to be able to connect the dots. But we also then need to be cautious about placing a large amount of time on the comments, such as David did not ask any questions. Because we're just told that he didn't. Now we can come up with ideas, but it's then we can't say this is the exact reason why. So Adonijah wants to be king, so what does he do? We find out in verses 7 and 8 that he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abathar, the priest, and they followed in Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok and the, the priest of Benaniah and the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan and the prophet of Shimei and Re 
and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Now what we see here now is Adonijah wants to be able to see king, but we see another problem arising within this text, that there's this division. The seed of this division, as we see this plan of Adonijah, I want to be king. What you have is you have Joab and Abathar following Adonijah. Now we will see the effects of this choice later on. But just think about what happened to Absalom. The author is comparing this and making this uh, connection between what Adonijah is doing and what Absalom did. What happened to those who followed uh, Absalom? But we also are told that it's not everyone who follows uh, Adonijah. We're not told why. We're just told that others did not. Specifically in verse 8, we're told about Zadok, Benaniah, Nathan, Shimei, and Re, and the mighty men were not with Adonijah. Now, Zadok, we've met most of these people in 2 Samuel, specifically towards the end. Benaniah, the doer of great deeds. Nathan, the famous prophet, you are the man, David. Now, again, let's pretend that we don't know what's coming in the story. Now, we can even see here this clue. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Joab is a hard man to pinpoint. Is he a a good person or a bad person? Seems sometimes he makes wise choices. Sometimes he makes loyal choices for David's sake. But I don't necessarily you would say he's a godly man in all situations. But there you have Nathan, Jehoiada, and Zadok, all godly men. Shimei is mentioned later, and Ray is this is the only time that he's mentioned. You can focus on many names, but think about what offices these men held. Joab, the commander of the army. Abathar's a priest, but it's important to know and take note of this because this is important what happens later and what happens as we remember to connect it back to First and Second Samuel. But Abathar is actually from the house of Eli. So again, we can see even why before we're reading any more, we're seeing these dots that the author is connecting with us to be able to help us to see if this is a good thing or bad thing. But we see a military leader, and we see a priest. But there's something clearly lacking in all of this. That is the office of a prophet. You don't have Nathan or anyone else in that position of a prophet. Why is that important? Well, you think about it. Who anointed Saul? A prophet. Samuel. Who anointed David? A prophet, Samuel. And then what you have here is no prophet. David had Nathan who come up. And throughout First and Second Samuel, you see not just the rise of kings, but also the establishment of a prophet for the balance of the king. 
is exactly what Samuel points out. Samuel saw Saul and, the, Saul and the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it, he it is who shall restrain my people. When he meets David, How long do you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him over being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to the Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. We're in chapter, verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or his height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks an outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And who anoints David? Anoint him, for it is he. It's not merely that the, the office of the prophet then gets to choose who is king. The office of the prophet who hears God's voice and then anoints God's chosen person to be king. That the prophet is an important part of this transition. But that's lacking with Adonijah. Calling yourself a king does not make yourself a king. We would say something like that we, we see in, in the government in America, you have checks and balances. And you might then say, if you're, you're looking back in the Old Testament, you say that there's checks and balances found in the prophet and the king. That the prophet and the king go hand in hand as checks and balances. That you might have a king that is wayward, but a prophet who is godly, who calls that king to account. So we're merely up to verse seven, uh, 8, but we've seen the author is laying... Uh, things out, even if we're not reading further into the, we know what's coming, but we're seeing here that the author is making connections to First and Second Samuel to give us hints of where we're going. But then finally, Adonijah has his coronation. Verses 9 and 10. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, fattened calf by the ser- serpent stone, which is beside Enrogil, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Again, here we see what Adonijah does, but also the people that he excludes. No doer of good deeds, no prophet, no mighty men. Again, the author has focused a lot of time to the mighty men in Second Samuel towards the end. As these men are serving under David, but here they're not there in Adonijah's case. But again, we're reminded. What did Absalom do in Second Samuel chapter 15? He went with 200 men in verses 11 and 12 from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Etaphel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Gila. And as the conspiracy grew strong, and the people of Absalom kept increasing. So here you have Adonijah seeking to be able to lead and, and claim the seat on the throne. And the author is showing us that he is more like um, 
He is not like David. He's more like Absalom. He's more like Saul than he is like David. He's missing key important parts. Now we're going to stop here tonight because if we were to begin the next section, I think that would be too much for us to be able to try and handle and try and consider this evening. But I think in all of this, is a great reminder of us that there were always a generation away from apostasy. There were always a generation away from a leader coming in and shifting and changing things. We see this throughout Kings, the importance of a godly king, specifically on the nation of Israel. That a godly king will lead the nation of Israel to true worship of God, but a ungodly king will lead them away to worship false gods. I mean, again, it doesn't take long for us to be able to read through books in history, for us to be able to understand this truth. You think about the the mighty uh, seminary of Princeton. They can go within generations from the might of B.B. Warfield to then uh, years later having Machen been kicked out in just such a short time. And you see this throughout the book of Kings. We saw it in Samuel. It didn't take long, Samuel chapter 7, and then what happens in chapter 8? Well, they demand their own king. They neglect, they reject God as their king. Samuel says, the Lord says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Chapter 7, that great height as a nation, and then you go into Saul. Now, we're not told much about what Israel is like underneath the kingship of Saul, as we are told specifically throughout the book of Kings. But we should always be praying not just for us to be faithful, but also we we should be praying that God would raise up that next generation of faithful pastors and leaders in the church. That we even at this church would be praying that we would see men and women with a sense of a call on their life, either to some form of ministry or some form of missions. That we would be praying that there would be pastors raised up, even in a small church like ours. That after we are long gone, that the church still remains faithful. And here Adonijah is willing to force himself onto the throne. This might be a bit dangerous, mainly because we have no idea what it would have been like. How this would have changed if this was to be the case. If Absalom was any example then what Absalom did in his wickedness, we'll see it in other kings. But here there's also a contrast between Solomon, whom we meet just really in the last verse, that Solomon's not invited. But in all of this, we we can worry about it going from good to bad, but we also see it sometimes go from bad to good. 
Just as a good kingdom can turn into a bad kingdom, so too a bad kingdom can turn into a good kingdom. Although we don't see this that often in denominations, we have seen it happen. The denomination does turn back to Scripture. But we also have a greater sense underneath the New Testament of that of the Old. And that's that in the Old Testament, we know the promise that David's son will sit on the throne forever, but they might have a shadowed view of what that might look like. They might think that Adonijah would be a good king because he's David's son. But ultimately, we see in the book of Kings that both the north and the southern kingdoms are taken into exile for their wickedness. But we see that God's plan in all of this, that even when wicked leaders seek to be able to take the throne, that God's plans are never thwarted, that he does accomplish that promise of exactly what is said in Second Samuel chapter 7, that his son does ascend to the throne and he does rule and reign forever. Now it's not an easy ride, It's not found merely in the next in line of Adonijah or Solomon. We can find great comfort as Job does. In Job chapter 42, after the Lord speaks to him out of the whirlwind, Job turns and answers the Lord and he says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What a great thing to be able to stand and see as we look in this opening chapter as we're beginning to see what's going to happen to David's kingdom. That that promise that is given to us, we, if we're reading this story without knowing what is to come, we might not know who that next king is going to be. But we know that God's promise is going to happen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook. Or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.